0: You're listening to Perspectives in Parryville. Today my guest is Cameron Malcher, a teacher and podcast producer. In this episode we explore Cameron's driving curiosity and passion for teaching, education and communication and his love of storytelling, drama and community. Cameron reflects on his postgraduate studies in educational psychology, including the ways our minds construct knowledge by combining social and emotional and cognitive processes. We find out about drama-based pedagogies and how these can support students to explore different perspectives and strengthen their critical thinking and analytical skills. We explore teaching as a multifaceted and contextually dependent practice that benefits from continuous and multiple perspectives and how these often help teachers frame their thinking and practice. Cameron provides insights into his podcast, Teachers Education Review or TER, which seeks to bridge the gap between education research, policy and practice in an ongoing conversation with various voices and points of view. The podcast features topical education policy analysis and opinions, as well as interviews with educational researchers, policy experts, academics, leaders, teachers and other practitioners. We find out how Cameron brings ideas to people, helps teachers get a sense of how they connect with the teaching profession and encourages further thinking and activity on improving educational standards. We also talk about the inherently political nature of education, the value of public discourse, and why it's important to maintain a public space for discussion and critical analysis of education policy. Cameron encapsulates His work in education in a simple philosophy that relates to understanding yourself, encouraging a teacher's voice, and then being able to advocate for yourself and others from an informed position. Here's my conversation with Cameron Melcher. So thanks for joining us, Cameron. Nice to see you again. Great to be here. Thanks, Mark. So we, I want to get up to speed with how, how did we get to this point in time, you know? So if you could just let us know what you did in your either your schooling or your university studies. We don't have to go all the way back into your history, but, you know, just give us a sense of, you know, what sort of things you were interested in and how, and how we got to this moment, if that's not too confusing a
1: question. Sorry, I'll stop talking. I'll do my best. I'll do my best. So I am primarily a high school English and drama teacher, and I got into teaching through kind of a lifelong love of storytelling and theater. I've always been, I suppose, more of a uh, maker than a critic. You know, uh, my love of English and and storytelling always came from from the doing, from the storytelling, much as, as my love and engagement with theater was always in performing and theater making. As opposed to what's... I'm a bit confused what you mean. Well, there's also the side of, uh, you know, there's also the side of studying English and drama that's very much about the analysis. You know, the the dramaturgy, the story analysis. You know, there there are English teachers I have worked with in my career who really love and enjoy the depth of critical analysis of a text but then shy away from creative writing exercises. You know, there's it, it's, not, it's not one homogenous subject, you know, just like there are some people who, you know, in, in teaching and studying English, there are some people who really take to poetry and others not so much, and some who really take to uh, the study of play scripts as a text and, and others not so much. So, you know, it's not one big homogenous subject. There is the critical analysis side, there is the creative side, and then there are all the different Genres of text that exist within that very broad field, and of course, people are always going to have strengths, weaknesses, preferences within that within that range. So, for, so for you, it was about the performance aspect or the the actual kind of like a practitioner, by the sounds of it. Uh, to a degree, yes, yeah. I mean, I I sort of grew up among community theatre companies. You know, from about the age of ten, I was involved in youth theatre groups and. And there was a local community theatre near that was sort of in between my school and where I lived that became kind of my home away from home for many years. It was sort of the, the main third space that wasn't home and that wasn't school for me. And so that was, that was, that was my activity. That was my pursuit, my hobby, my, my passion outside of, outside of school and away from home. And it was through that that I got into teaching in the first place. You know, I had initially <clears> – <throat> excuse me – I had initially after high school, uh, made some efforts to pursue a career as an actor, as a, as a theater practitioner and picked up a job running after school drama programs at a local performing arts high school and just really fell in love with the process of teaching and engaging other people in that process of, of theater making and of, of acting. Um, by a winding series of, of events. I didn't end up completing my theater studies degree and instead completed an honors degree in English. And so my two main subject teaching areas became English and drama. I was, uh, you know, I was employed. It's sort, of a, it's sort of a weird and wonderful story in that I was employed as a targeted graduate at university on the basis of my strengths as a drama teacher and then was appointed to a school that didn't act- actually want a drama teacher, they wanted an English teacher. <clears throat> Excuse me. So what so, did you do? How does that... Well, I did, did, you- I did teach a little bit of drama to begin with, but they had the school had... And they, they were quite open with this about me when I arrived there. The school had applied for an English and drama teacher because uh, of issues to do with staffing codes, but had ultimately wanted somebody initially to... Uh, to fill an English teaching role. So I had like a little bit of drama, mostly English. Again, not a problem. That was my main teaching area. But um, then similarly, my first uh, head teacher role, uh, you know, I, I relieved at that school for many years as both head teacher English and head teacher creative arts. But then when I finally got a substantive head teacher role at another school, that position was advertised as head teacher English and drama but the school had no drama program to speak of, and the uh, the substantive drama teacher at the school uh, was not really qualified or experienced to teach much outside of that subject area. So it was again, you know, found myself mainly. And look, English is, of course, uh, you know, I don't want to sound like I'm having a whinge. English is always going to be a major area of study in a school. You know, it's the one compulsory subject from year seven to 12 here in New South Wales. It's always going to be the bulk of a workload. Uh, But it's just my career has sort of always been pursuing my love of drama and theatre, but ending up doing more in English. And now uh, I'm in an EALD role teaching English to learners of English as a second language, which funnily enough, allows me to be a bit more dramatic and outgoing in the classroom because obviously trying to engage students who aren't familiar with the language in non-verbal communication and through, you know, enacting uh, and, and that sort of thing is is a core of EALD pedagogy. So it is it is kind of funny how these things come around in, in circles. So do you actively pursue, like, uh, opportunities to incorporate
0: drama into uh what you're doing i guess when you're doing english teaching as such
1: look where it's appropriate but i mean that notion of incorporating drama can cover quite a wide range of you know small activities in the moment um you know it's often it can often be as simple as if there's if there's a moment that's central to a story and you're trying to get students to understand it or view it from different perspectives there are certain sort of drama-based pedagogies like even as simple as stand up and make a scene you know stand up get a group of students you stand up and and make a freeze frame to represent the key moment and then I want you know getting each of you to explain who are you what are you representing you know that's analysis that's that's critical thinking, it's just that they're doing it by getting up and embodying it. And it, it's a very simple thing, but those kind of, you know, those are inherently drama-based pedagogies because they are about movement with body in a space that allow students to uh, explore what they understand, foster deeper understanding, and then of course they sit down and sort of make their notes and write about it in a structured and supported way. So there's always been an opportunity to incorporate those kind of practices in the teaching of other subjects it's just a matter of uh looking for those opportunities when they present themselves and knowing how to strike the balance of course so then
0: um then what happened i guess it's kind of you're kind of off on your your teaching career or you know after you've graduated you've sort of done a few teaching gigs but then what what else (laughs) There's there's a gap i guess between
1: then and where we are at this point Uh, Well, yeah, I mean, I I was teaching for a few years and I did a professional learning course. um, And it's funny, only in the last couple of weeks have I had the opportunity to speak to the person who ran this course. And, you know, I did kind of let them know the impact that it had had on me. But I attended a professional learning course run by a woman named Karen Yeager, who for a long time has been the president of the New South Wales English Teachers Association and uh, has subsequently left public education and has, uh, is now principal uh, of, I think, the Hills Grammar School. But she ran a course on concept-based learning and introduced me to a couple of different theorists, uh, particularly uh, Wigan and McTeague's work in Understanding by Design and uh, the concept-based curriculum by H. Lynn Erickson. And that kind of sent me off down a little self-discovery rabbit hole. And after following that for a little while in my own practice, I ended up deciding to go back to uni and do a master's in educational psychology. I was really interested in really interested in the way that our minds construct knowledge and how pedagogy can support that kind of effective construction. And you know that that changed sort of the direction of my career a bit i suppose you know studying after school while working full time unfortunately meant that i did have to put many of my theatrical pursuits aside for a while uh, up until up until that point up until uh, about 2011 i was still regularly directing and producing shows um but what sort them- of shows sorry what sort what sort of shows uh, Oh, well, at that time, once I'd started teaching, I started, I took on a role with a community theatre company in Parramatta, which was where I was living when I first started teaching. And uh, they had a regular line of productions aimed at schools. So I was directing and producing productions of the plays that students were studying in the HSC. So I directed about five, I think five shows over five and a bit years, to and then was involved in the production of another five to, you know, give students that live theatrical experience. You know, I was talking to... At the moment, there's a lot of discussion about equity and inequity in education, and uh, I saw a simple post on Twitter that really resonated with me, which was somebody commenting about how, to this day, there are still students who will have to study a play as part of their HSC in English who will have never had the opportunity to see live theatre. And obviously living in Parramatta is not, you know, we're not talking about rural parts of New South Wales, but it, it is a motivation for me that kept me going in community theatre for a long time, you know, to provide those theatrical experiences and, you know, to try and do the best job I could, I suppose. I mean, I think everybody I think everybody who goes into, you know, the effort and time it takes to put on a theatrical production wants to go into it with the best intentions and putting in the best effort they can sometimes people's uh desire to put their own creative spin on things makes it a bit less uh useful to a class of students (laughs) studying it for whom it may well be their first theatrical experience and that's and that's you know not a criticism just a comment and it applies to community theater all the way up to the most established professional companies So, were you you had to kind of put some of
0: that on hold by the sounds of it when you went and did your masters, like the postgraduate study? Yeah, that's right. Conceptual. um, i was still a bit confused. What, what exactly? What is the? What was that professional development moment that led to your decision? What's What's the kind of heart of what? that means conceptual or like how people learn or the thought processes or the the mental and emotional kind of
1: aspects i mean the- all of the above it's and and that's kind of that, that's kind of the point is that when when pursuing cons- deep conceptual understanding you know our our brains retain information both physically and kind of metaphorically in connection to other things that we understand you know everything that you learn either connects to an existing framework that you have in your mind, either a sort of abstract conceptual framework, or in some cases, literally a a network of synapses and neurons, because as, as has been discovered relatively recently in the field of neuroscience, you know, memories and information in our brain is usually connected to singular clusters of synapses which is why, you know, an acquired brain injury can fundamentally change someone's personality and memories. Um, And so when you are teaching for conceptual understanding, it's about making those connections more explicit, about building all of the knowledge around a core concept and a core abstract concept so that a, it's more connected. B, it has a relationship to other things, which in makes it more likely that students are going to remember it. It uh, reduces, you know, when something's more familiar, when something has a connection, it reduces the anxiety of new information. You know, it's both it's both the social and emotional side of learning and the, the conceptual cognitive side of learning. You know, at the moment, there's a lot of talk about, uh, you know, cognitive load theory is kind of the, the, uh, the theory de jour when it comes to the relationship between pedagogy and learning and you know cognitive load theory the idea of lessening cognitive load again is about explicitly making those connections and about about uh, you know helping students see the relationship between what they already know what they know and so planning learning in that way you know it wasn't just the one professional learning experience it was taking that having a lot of success with it in the classroom and wanting to know more about just how our brains learn in general and as a teacher how you can support and develop that so you know it was it it was and has been a kind of backbone of my uh teaching practice ever since and after completing that master's degree you know i made a lot of connections through that degree and also through doing my podcast so, social connections, not not synaptic connections. <laughs> well, both too, <laughs> literally both, uh, because one doesn't exist without the other. Um, but uh, in doing that, I made a few connections, which led to a few different uh, career opportunities. You know, I ended up spending, I ended up spending a little bit of time working for the New South Wales Department of Education as a curriculum advisor, um, which had well, it was an interesting experience. Um, I had also been quite involved in uh union activity um as a you know kid from a working class background I suppose I um I had a lot of sympathy with what what unions were were trying to do in education and that led to me spending a bit of time working in media and communications for the New South Wales Teachers Federation and then uh again through sort of connections I made in the through the podcast and through some of my studies, I ended up working for Victoria University for a couple of years, or not quite two years, uh, working for a program there called Avid Australia, which was effectively a professional learning and school improvement program. It was something, it was an Australian branch of an American organization that was geared around a whole school approach to effective teaching practice and looking at not just how do we get things happening in the classroom, but how does the school need to approach its management of systems and its workplace culture to support good teaching and to uh, engage students, not just in one classroom, but across the school. And so I spent a couple of years doing that kind of work. um, And then eventually my sort of uh, leave clock ran out and I had to make a decision and, and am now back working as a classroom teacher, as an EALD teacher. And, uh, getting to put what I've been teaching for the last couple of years back into practice in the classroom.
0: You're listening to Perspectives in Parryville. So you mentioned your podcast uh, a couple of times, can you tell us a little bit more about what you've what
1: what that is and what what's involved with it sure so for not quite nine and a half years now about nine years and four months I've been producing the teachers education review podcast which is a fortnightly podcast about education in Australia that combines kind of topical policy analysis and Opinion with interviews with, you know, researchers, system leaders, practitioners in various parts of education. It started in 2013, and I suppose this goes back to my background in theatre and drama and liking to do things. But what little success I did have uh, in my pursuit of an acting career was largely in voice acting. And I did a lot of training and and a little bit of work in more sort of event hosting and, you know, emceeing and that kind of thing and, and doing uh, a bit of voice acting for a software company. And I'd always been interested in uh, radio and radio drama as a medium. They've always been two of my... you know, Radio drama has been one of my favourite storytelling mediums to play with.
0: Why is and, that? Sorry? Why? what what's what goes on in a radio drama that kind of um resonated
1: with you it's just a different way of telling stories and i suppose it apart from the challenge of telling stories and, and creating environments and atmosphere solely through auditory means it also is a very portable uh, a very portable storytelling medium you know you can't you well, what does that these mean? days we can but these days we can walk around and watch a movie if we want to you know we have smartphones in our pockets but it's also a, a very impractical way to consume narratives similarly it's not so easy to uh, you know you can't read a book while you're driving the car or maybe you shouldn't you know no but So it's also a a medium that is much more compatible with busy lives. And, you know, to this day, I still enjoy listening to audio narratives and audio dramas while doing other things. You know, things that don't require language processing, you know, washing the dishes, doing the shopping, that kind of thing. So it was always... It was all you know audio medium has always been something that I've I've enjoyed um, and again you know a lot of my experience had been in in voice acting so that's so I'd paid a bit more attention to that field I suppose and when the iPod uh, came out and was the sort of global phenomenon that it was and podcasts became a thing off the back of it I very much enjoyed podcasting as a medium and, and after a period of time after a period of time I just sort of felt like it was time to, to create something Australian-based. You know, I'd been listening to a number of education podcasts from overseas, and, you know, if anybody wants to know more about this side of things, I wrote a small section for the book Flip the System Australia about it, but there was kind of an impetus connected to a big policy shift in New South Wales education that really uh, had a, a, an effect on professional learning. And to an extent... Sorry? What, what what was it? What to, What's this thing you're referring to? Uh, well, in New South version. Wales was the first state to put in a kind of registration process for teachers. And as far as I'm aware, New South Wales is still the only state that requires teachers to complete a certain number of approved professional learning hours. Like all states have some version of mandatory professional learning, only in New South Wales does a third party have to authorize and endorse that professional learning for it to be counted as part of your total which of course gave rise to a huge secondary industry of professional learning which was of hugely variable quality the the one saving grace was that new south wales education had a significant non school based education sector and that professional learning experience that i talked about was run through a department of education workshop but then in 2013 so that that came in in 2004 2005 that mandatory accredited hours professional learning piece but then in 2013 there was a big uh, policy shift a policy known as local schools local decisions and a key pillar of that policy was that about 75% of the non-school-based staff, those positions were just gone. And instead of specialist positions, uh, everything was sort of reduced. There was still a handful of specialist positions at a state level, but all the regional positions became generalist positions. So there was no more a local HSC English specialist who could help schools with professional learning and curriculum development, that sort of thing. And arising out of you know my awareness and my experience of those things I wanted there to be a podcast that focused on Australian education issues specifically and gave teachers an opportunity to access um, you know other other opinions other professional learning and basically something that I wanted to listen to didn't exist so I finally decided hey let's let's try and make it so what was it, What was involved in making that happen on a on a practical level? Well, the first thing I did I, I the first thing I did was reach out to people online, because I didn't want it. I wanted it to be a discussion. I wanted it to be multiple voices, and at the time, the Department of Education had quite an active yammer community. Uh, which doesn't really exist in the same. It still exists, but the the same sort of community doesn't exist anymore. Te- teachers know what Yammer is, but the rest of uh, the society maybe doesn't. What is Yammer? <laughs> Yammer is uh, Microsoft's enterprise social media platform for workplaces. So if you've heard of Slack, I mean Teams, it's interesting to see Yammer and Teams sitting side by side. You know, Teams is an even more narrow focused sort of shared workspace. But Yammer is basically a a closed social media platform for an organization to use. So I reached out to a few people and ended up uh, making a connection with Corinne Campbell, who at the time was an assistant principal in a public school. And the two of us together uh, put out the first couple of episodes of the TER podcast. And we worked together for about three and a half, nearly four years before she got a principal position, and time just became a bit too much of a factor.
0: Was there, a, yeah, how much time was, I mean, I know with these, my my podcast, I have very little preparation. I send my, my question parameters out, and uh, we just kind of make it up as we go along, because it's based primarily on, on what the guest, the individual brings, however, most podcasts are not like that. They've kind of got a degree of planning, I would imagine, or planning or consideration. But, I mean, where does your what was your
1: approach? Well, at, for, for most of the time that Corinne and I were working together on the podcast, there would be more discussion. So a key feature of the podcast has always been looking at key topics uh, stories about education in the news and giving a bit of analysis of those. And so that takes time not only to sort of read and review the news, but to also, uh, you know, come up with an opinion that you're comfortable espousing to a public audience and complicated. It sounds complex. Well, it can be. And, you know, especially when, uh, you know, especially when both of us work for a department of education that has a very strict social media policy. So, although it didn't back then, Um, the social media policy uh, used to be much more, I wouldn't say laissez-faire, but it used to be much more forgiving. Uh, That was changed a few years ago to a policy that has much, much uh, clear parameters and much more um, tighter regulations and expectations. And so for that reason, you know, we would primarily focus on federal education issues. Now, we started started, uh, the podcast just after the whole Gonski campaign kicked off under the Gillard government or under the sort of Gillard-Rudd period of the government. So there was a lot of federal education stuff to talk about, and there has been for many years. But that takes time, you know, going through the news, finding the stories, um, framing the discussion. Then similarly with the interviews, you know, we, we tried a couple of different formats for interview presentation uh, where we would you know, break the interview up into chunks and kind of discuss key parts of it in between presenting the interview content. And you know, the format of the podcast has changed a bit over the nine and a half years that it's been running. But the way that it used to be done required quite a bit of time in preparation because we had to listen to the content. We had to prepare and and be ready to discuss it. Uh, and also, it meant finding time to record, you know, recording. Yeah, a- how, how did you use it? Because we're in
0: a platform or, will I, well, I say the name of it. It's, Riverside, yeah, it's what Riverside. I use at the moment, yep. Um, whereas I I don't use this one, but it's it's a really nifty-looking platform and it's kind of the quality's higher. Um, but, I mean, this wasn't always around, so I'm wondering
1: what, how did you approach the recordings? I guess were they face-to-face? Look, they, 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 we did do a bit of face-to-face for a while, but most of it has been remote. Uh, and, you know, if you go back and listen to past episodes of the podcast, you will hear the highly variable quality of audio recordings over the time. Um, I've only been using this particular platform for a little less than a year. Prior to that, you know, Skype was, Skype was the major platform before Zoom became the thing that most people actually had access to. Yeah, but I've I mean, even but- done interviews just over the phone. Uh, you know, I've got a couple. I've got a range of different digital recorders that I can just plug my phone's audio output into. Now, that changed dramatically in the last few years when most mobile phone manufacturers dropped an audio port off of their phones because it was, you know, when when phones had a a three and a half mil headphone jack that was a much easier direct audio connection to a device than it is now. I mean, you can buy adapters and dongles, but as I have learned through purchasing things that don't work, not all dongles and connectors have the same functions and ability. So, uh, you know, it, it got a little bit more complicated. In the end, once I learned about this platform, it sort of solves most of my needs and also provides a higher quality recording at the end because it records locally whereas in the past i would be recording my end of a skype call or i'd be recording my end of a phone call and it has that compressed over the phone quality that's just really obvious this this platform at least gives a a rounder tone you know one thing i used to get uh people to do if possible was use their smartphone or a tablet to record their end of the conversation live and then i'd mix those two together So that worked for a while, but that obviously depends on the technical proficiency and comfort of the person at the other end of the phone call, uh, which you know some people are more confident than others. So yeah, it's it's been a learning curve. It's been a process of experimentation, and I suppose I suppose the one thing about podcasting, you know, there's two types of podcasts. There's podcasts that are the kind of democratized; everybody on the internet can have a crack at. Publishing content, and then there's the podcasts that are the professional production company just using a web-based distribution for stuff that yeah. previously would have been on the radio.
0: Yeah, it's almost like a variation of a broadcast model of, of or broadcasting like television, radio, commercial entities.
1: That's right, that kind of yeah for an and, audience. And, and there was a bit of a you know there, <laughs> there there's an Australian podcast award. Uh, thing that happens and there had been a bit of you know discussion about the fact that over a couple of years you know the ABC kept sweeping all the podcast awards and the question got asked well are these awards recognising community production or are they recognising multi million dollar presentations that just happen to get put on the internet you know what, what constitutes Boy, what, is, what is the answer to that question the answer is that the awards ended up completely restructuring their categories to sort of recognize the difference. Because, you know, podcasting is kind of like blogging, I think. A lot of people came to podcasting, certainly I came to podcasting, uh, more for its uh, ability to access an audience without gatekeeping, much like blogging allowed. You know, let the audience decide what they choose to listen to and what they don't. And, you you'll, you'll get, I mean, you'll get that, in any medium you have the same issue with books you know we have a huge market for self-published books versus books that a publishing company will take on and promote and you know bu- to an extent buyer beware but you know that's just that's just the media industry and it's been a cycle that's been going on ever since ever since Gutenberg and his printing press you know who has access to who has access to the means to getting things out to an audience
0: You're listening to Perspectives in Perryville. So with the podcast, you've been doing it for quite a number of years. What keeps you going with it?
1: A couple of things keep me going. The first is I still see value in the original purpose that the podcast was created for. You know, it was, it was intended to be a way to, uh, you know, create something of, that people find valuable. And, you know, what little... Podcasting is kind of a one-way medium, so it doesn't invite as much feedback as, say, more interactive things on online or on social media. But what feedback I have received is, is generally quite positive. You know, people find value in the, the fortnightly interviews and, and even in just hearing a different perspective about policy issues in education sometimes. And also we've been very lucky to have regular contributors that aren't just, you know, myself, Corinne and the guests. You know, for a long time we've hosted segments from third party contributors who bring their own different perspectives and ideas. So it's always I suppose the fact that the podcast has always been a little bit of a little bit of a, a mixed bag of ideas for education and not just here's what one person thinks. Why is uh, why is that valuable? Because I mean, education is a multifaceted endeavour. You know, one person's voice. You know, I, I I think it's valuable to have multiple voices in the conversation and to have multiple perspectives. Sometimes that don't even don't necessarily agree, because, uh, you know, as it, it it's almost a cliche now. But you know, it's an often that often cited uh, comment by Dylan Williams that uh, everything works somewhere, but nothing works everywhere. Um, or I'm probably butchering that from memory, but just the idea that education is such a multifaceted and contextually dependent practice that you need a, a multitude of perspectives continuously to, to be framing your thinking around what you do as a teacher. So that that I still see value in, and that is what sort of primarily keeps me going. On the other side of that, it's also been something that I really enjoy. You know, every on average, every fortnight, I get to talk to somebody who is a leading expert in a field of education. And because, you know, it used to be be me and Corinne, now it's largely just me making decisions about who to interview. If there's something I want to learn more about in my own teaching practice, I can send that person an email. If I read a paper, I send them an email and say, hey, I've really enjoyed this paper. Can we talk about it for for a podcast interview? And also I find that I mean, don't get me wrong, there are, there are now dozens of Australian education podcasts, at least a dozen that I could probably name off the top of my head. You know, the, the field has exploded in the, the nearly 10 years I've been doing this. But that is still not enough for all the people out there doing work and research. You know, education is a field that we talk, I talked about gatekeepers before. And one of the worst gatekeepers for education discourse is commercial media. They get to decide what stories get told, what research makes it into the public domain. And every university in Australia has an education department filled with people doing different and varied research on different aspects of education, most of which gets published into a commercially controlled journal behind a paywall that... The average classroom teacher either doesn't have access to or doesn't have the time to fully pick apart and see how it's interesting so for the researchers particularly for the policy experts and even to a degree for the consultants they are always interested and excited to talk about the work they're doing you know nobody goes into academia you know people i should say people go into academia out of a passion for a subject you know you don't devote your life to the study of a field like education, unless you have some driving curiosity and passion for it. So also, as much as I, you know, I know that there's value to it, to the teachers, I know that there's a lot of people who don't get the opportunity to talk about their work that often. And I find that that is always an interesting engagement. You know, sometimes a piece of work in education will catch the public interest and will get its five minutes in the media. But even then, when I talk to people who have had interest in their work uh, at that level, the common thread of such conversations is, oh, yeah, but this got cut. oh yeah, but they only wanted to talk about this aspect of it. you know, what's the what's the sensationalist element to this? Um, obviously, I'm simplifying, but you know, so so there's that benefit, both, you know, there, there's sort of there's sort of three groups that I, I like to think are gaining some benefit from the podcast. One is the people who listen, who get access to a range of voices and opinions about issues in education. One is to, Uh, particularly researchers and system leaders who get an output for their content that they may not necessarily always get access to. And then there's, you know, me personally who gets this opportunity to engage with such conversations, which is just not, you know, doing this podcast has by far been one of the best professional learning exercises for me personally because I do get to have such a range of rich and varied conversations. But the other thing that keeps me going and uh, you know this this is where this is where, you know, as I said before, I have to be aware of of my status, of working for a particular education employer. But the other thing that keeps me going is i there's one there's one fundamental belief I have about education, uh, and I, I don't suggest that this is unique at all, but education is an inherently political institution you know education in all major countries exists and is framed and is is made possible by acts of legislation and acts of government which means it is subject to the whims of the same you know most the the majority employer for teachers in this country is state and territory governments and so the the political fortunes of education i think are something to be watched carefully and that's why you know, this, this podcast, and, and I had this conversation just recently with someone at a conference. I didn't go into this podcast pursuing particular audience numbers. I didn't go into it pursuing commercial success. Uh, I've never accepted any advertising or sponsorship for the podcast. Uh, in fact, I've had to quite actively reject uh, people who have kind of insisted or bit tried to be very insistent. And only just this year have I even opened up a Patreon account to sort of invite contributions from listeners to support the ongoing costs of the podcast. But part of the part of the the you know what I did go into it for was to to maintain a kind of space for discussion about education policy. You know, sometimes the guests that we have on are not teaching researchers or experts, but policy researchers and experts. And you know the the, the tagline for the podcast is bridging the gap between research policy and practice, because all of those things, all of those things have a big impact on, on teachers and their education. And I suppose I, I always want to maintain a space for that kind of critical analysis because, you know, again, I'm speaking in kind of, you know, obvious observations, but education has just become ever more politicized uh, over the last decade or so
0: maybe 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 obvious for some people but other people that are not maybe people that are not teachers they they maybe don't appreciate all of this although you know they're parents but they're kind of coming from that perspective but I guess it's when you were saying about the researchers in universities I'm not sure I'm not convinced that the the kind of general parent who isn't a teacher would appreciate that there's ongoing uh, research all the time it, that that taps into what their their students
1: are experiencing potentially, and so yeah, I guess absolutely. It's kind of and and it's and it's the political force behind it. It's, it's the combination of of the media and the political force that sort of makes the decision about what gets through to the public discourse. And and keeping an eye on that, and I suppose giving myself a justification to stay on top of it and to be aware of it is something that keeps me going with the podcast. I mean, you know, a really good example, obviously there might be a bit bit of a gap in time between when we're recording this and when this episode goes online, but just in recent times, the Federal Productivity Commission published its interim report in education. And the news stories are all about Productivity Commission uh, suggests charter schools and independent public schools as a way to address uh, education standards. But the broader discussion about, well, hang on, what is the Productivity Commission? Why does it even exist? Well, that's a question I was going to ask you. Yeah, well, I mean, this is, this is the thing. <laughs> like, the Productivity Commission is a, a government body that was set up in 1998 by John Howard's government with the remit to be constantly looking at public policy to see how you can increase productivity, which is policy speak for how do you get more for less money or in practical terms, how can we justify cutting spending by demanding more from people in sectors? So the entire Productivity Commission doesn't exist to solve social problems it exists to answer the question, how can we squeeze more out of less funding? So like this product-
0: a kind of system, like a kind of a, 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 a production system,
1: almost. Of- well, yeah, to a degree. And look, there, there, there have been criticisms leveled at the Productivity Commission that Howard basically created his own publicly funded right-wing think tank. And I'm not saying I would argue too much with that definition. But the point is the body exists to answer a very narrow and specific question. And that question is not, how do we actually improve social problems? It's how do we get more for less money in public sector or in in industry and public sector? And so when this, you know, it's been 24 years of the Productivity Commission, it's become normalized in our discourse. And so this Interim Productivity Commission report comes out that says well, one of the best ways to get more for our dollar would be to implement independent public schools. But the, they, but that report, that inquiry, doesn't have the scope to actually ask the question, is that a good educational outcome? Is that the best way to improve educational standards? Sure, you might get more for your money in terms of more teachers who are paid less or more student hours in school or blah, 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 blah. But... The simple fact is here in Australia, a couple of states and territories have tried independent public schools and then walked the policy back because they were not effective educational measures. So that's just an example of the other thing that sort of keeps me going with the podcast is providing a space and you know, for me personally, to to give me a, a motivation to keep an eye on such things and provide a bit of commentary on it as the podcast goes along, because nothing happens in education that is not originated in politics. And as our politics get more tribalistic and more divisive, and as, you know, I mean, we've, we've reached a point in the world where we have uh, scientific, uh, not scientific bodies, but where we have we have groups of experts in public policy analysis and science. You know, it's coming particularly from uh aspects of environmental science as well, literally asking the question, is like this capitalist society we've created the underlying problem that needs to be addressed? And we've also got political parties who are pursuing capitalism in its unfettered form without little regard for, you know, some of the biggest, for example, some of the biggest climate change deniers in our society are politicians because they have a different agenda. So, you know, I realize I'm touching on a lot of very big picture, potentially they controversial are, kind of they topics. Are very big controversial areas? Yes. But but the point is that is that is the world we live in and those are the politics influencing education. And that is that is another thing that keeps me going with the podcast is as I said to to provide me with a prompt to keep up to date, to pay attention to what's happening and to try and provide a little bit more measured commentary than maybe I've I've given in the last 10 minutes. But to to keep that somewhere in, in the mind of people who listen to the podcast, because the future of education and whatever function it plays in our society is governed by the politics of the day. And where we are now is not the result of the last election. It's the result of four elections ago. And what we do now and today is not necessarily going to have a huge impact tomorrow or in the next school year, but we're, we're going to see it in a decade's time. You know, this current, this current teacher shortage crisis, people who do the kind of policy analysis uh, that I aspire to, were talking about policies leading to a teacher shortage crisis 20 years ago. And sure enough, here we are because those policies and those politics of 20 years ago have led us to this path. And so it's my belief, it's my, you know, it's it's my contribution to the discussion that teachers might hopefully maintain a bit of uh, political context in their mind as they think about their role as educators, because the decisions we make now, not least of all uh, when we vote, will have a significant effect 10, 20 years from now when our kids... Uh, adults or going into various forms of education, and so I suppose if I'm going to try and tie all the the various threads of this conversation together, you know, going back to my to my love and my interest of drama and theatre, one of the one of the values of drama in in a school curriculum, and and one of the things that's lost when it as a subject is diminished is, you know, it is a subject uh, much like many of the creative arts, but it is a subject that at its most basic form is about expression of self and exploration of, of self. You know, uh, you don't need any equipment to do drama the way you do with music or with art or with many other subjects, which is not to diminish them at all, but, you know, any, anybody standing in a space can engage in dramatic expression and exploration of ideas. And it is also the only subject in a school context that explicitly requires effective collaboration skills. Uh, don 't get me wrong, effective collaboration skills can be part of any curriculum, but to work in drama. I suppose perhaps p e and team sport would be the only other the only other similar one, but that exploration and understanding of self is kind of what 's driven me through a lot of these things you know the The podcast is about bringing ideas to people to help uh, to help them get a sense of where they connect and where they see themselves situated within the teaching profession. I've I've had more than a few emails from people over the years saying that a particular interview or a particular segment in the podcast triggered something in their thinking that sent them off down a personal rabbit hole. And more than a few people uh, I've helped set up their own podcasts as a result of um as a result of of what I do on the TR podcast. And that idea of understanding yourself, understanding where you fit and are situated within your society, and then I suppose the final step to that is hopefully having a voice and advocating for yourself and for others from that informed position. Uh, you know, if I if I was to if I was to try and encapsulate my work in education in a in a simple philosophy, that that's really it. You know, to understand yourself and to be able to advocate for yourself and others is what I want students to do it's what i want teachers to do and it's what i what i try to do in this episode
0: i chatted with cameron melcher a teacher and podcast producer you can find more about this episode in the show notes including a link to the teachers education review ter podcast thank you for listening to perspectives in Perryville.